anything before we begin, we'll just wait a while, uh, anything on people's minds that you would like me to talk about this weekend? Something that is to do with Dharma, do with liberation, uh, that would be something you would like to have explored or answered or at least questioned or anything at all? Some big topic? Yeah. Could you talk about um, maybe how culturally we, we have a concept of freedom in the English language and the difference between that and liberation? Is there any difference? Big, good. That's a, that's a fantastic, that's a great question. They're all good questions. But, but that one is, is, is really important. And there's actually people, scholars now, studying that um, because it impacts um, the culture of Dharma in, in the Western world. Because if you have an idea of <clears throat> freedom, cultural freedom, <clears throat> that is embedded in the culture, then that gets translated into uh, Dharma. So there's people actually actively studying the transformation of Dharma based on <clears throat> ideas of what's called freedom in Western so-called democratic societies. It's quite interesting. So that's a big, it's wonderful, wonderful question. So yes, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be good to do. And any others? Any, any other giant topics like that? Or small topics? Or topics close to one's heart? Well, I think we better proceed. Do we, do we, we don't know how long that may be, yes? I'm just wondering if for you and for the others, might it be easier if you the chairs from the back came up? That would be much easier, yes, yes. That'd be great. Misha, you can let them know I don't bite too often. So if they get close, there's no, there's, there's no problem. Well, let's make a giant aspiration and um, the most important uh, or essential is generating uh, the enlightenment mind uh, relative, that is the liberation, the freedom uh, from suffering, relieving suffering for all sentient beings, and uh, uh, discovering and unfolding uh, the enlightenment mind, that is the primordial awareness. So let's uh, make three great dedications uh, to that uh, enterprise. May all sentient beings from Sara be free from suffering be joyful and truly abide in supreme happiness. We generate the supreme mind impartial towards all in order to attain the heart of awakening. In order that we may fully benefit the beings of six realms, we must attain the stage of Buddhahood in this very lifetime. Therefore, be very diligent this unsurpassed teaching, the path luminously clear of Aja essence. May all sentient beings from Sara be free from suffering, be joyful and truly abide in supreme happiness. We generate the supreme mind impartial towards all in order to attain the heart of awakening. In order that we may fully benefit the being six realms, 
We must attain the stage of Buddhahood in this very lifetime. Therefore, be very diligent in this unsurpassed teaching, the path of the luminously clear Vajra essence. May all sentient beings, samsara, be free from suffering, be joyful and truly abide supreme happiness. We generate supreme mind and partial towards all in order to attain the heart of awakening, in order that may fully benefit the being six realms. We must attain the stage of Buddhahood in this very lifetime. Therefore, be very diligent in this unsurpassed teaching, the path luminously clear, Vajra essence. So with that said, let's uh, uh, practice, uh, before I enter into the text on the 37, the 37 things that bodhisattvas do, uh, let us uh, take um, five minutes or so, whatever it shall be, and rest the mind in contemplating that there are no obstructions, but beings experience obstructions, and therefore they uh, suffer and they grasp and also uh, taking on that suffering uh, as the nature of emptiness, like rainbow light. In this case, we'll visualize it as black light from our, our friends, our partners, our relatives, uh, all the people of Antigua, uh, all the creatures. And uh, because it is the nature of emptiness, although it does appear, we can uh, see it dissolving away in our heart and vanishing into rainbow and white light. And when we breathe out to uh, all sentient beings, we breathe out beautiful, clear white light and uh, feel that they're becoming liberated of all afflictive states. So let's just rest in that and practice that beautiful meditation.
That's good. <clears throat> let's, let's begin the, uh, the transmission of this beautiful text. So this weekend is devoted to um, two topics. Uh, one is the uh, practices of bodhisattvas. And in the teaching of, of Dharma, uh, in all the cycles of, of, of the teaching, unless one adheres to a very strict interpretation, um, the, the purpose is not just for our own liberation uh, and freedom, which get into the nature of freedom, uh, but uh, for uh, also every other sentient being, because we're not actually uh, separate. And number two, uh, unless one realizes what people go through, uh, probably one won't uh, be in too interested in liberation for oneself. Uh, so this weekend is devoted to what an actual bodhisattva does. Now, you, some of you may know, do you know, all know the, what I'm If you don't know a word I'm using, please ask, because I'll be using a few, maybe more than two, um, non-English words. And even for those that may have heard it for a while, um, it's really good to know what, they, what it means. So let me pause. So there's the practice of bodhisattvas, and one of the practices of a bodhisattva is the way in which we exchange breathing, the way in which we actually interact with others. Um, it's a profound meditation. So before I start, uh, let's, let's, let's uh, talk about what a bodhisattva is and what a bodhisattva perhaps is not and why. So in the, in the teaching uh, of Dharma, there is uh, a beautiful, what's the word, crisp, clean understanding that all human beings go through three phases of wishing for liberation. No matter who you are, even if you've been in the teaching for years, you've been studying and meditating, you're going to go through this, uh, these three stages. And the first stage, which is called Hinayana, and, and these are kind of art, slightly artificial words, but they really are pretty cool because once you, especially if you teach, and you, you encounter a lot of beings meditating and practicing the Dharma, you will see these are actually really true, these three. They're, they're really absolutely accurate. And the first one in Hinayana is a desire to have less suffering for oneself. Pretty understandable, yes? And that could happen a hundred times a day. Just naturally, a hundred times a day where you think or you do things, which is to relieve the pressure, the anxiety, the illness, the uncomfortability in yourself and not think about others in the same way. Does that make sense? Even when you meditate. Oh, that feels better. I'm doing this for me because I want to remove my afflictive states. And that's quite natural, isn't it? And that means that the meditation, the study, the practice uh, of what's called Dharma, which is about liberation, is really about your liberation and removing the afflictive states, the emotional afflictive states, the physical afflictive states that are bugging you. And when that happens, 
um, then uh, there is maybe more calm and more relaxation, but it's about your relaxation. You're trying to maximize it. According to tradition, it's possible that if you follow that path in practice, it's possible that you can develop quite a high degree of self-liberation of emotional afflictive states. It's called an arahata. But you may not actually know the suffering of other beings, and you may not know how to liberate other beings, and you may not care about other beings, okay, of which we're all embedded with other sentient beings, okay. So uh, instead of being negative about this first stage, it's really important to recognize that most people come to, to meditation or the study of Dharma, which are completely different, by the way. They don't, they don't necessarily mean the same thing. Uh, the word uh, Dharma means uh, uh, complete liberation of afflictive and all mental forms of confusion. Freedom, real freedom. Even if you don't have political freedom, even if you don't have um, cultural freedom, uh, you can actually have uh, complete mental freedom. So it's really important to understand that during the day, even if you're practicing something like the breathing meditation that we just did, one can flit. You know the word flit? Flicker, like a butterfly. In and out and in and out of a feeling, I'm doing this for me. This is the most important thing is for me. Okay. The next one is called the Mahayana stage. And the Mahayana stage is a big jump for a lot of people. It's huge. It's an unbelievable trans transition, which is realizing that all sentient beings, not just oneself, but all sentient beings, trees, vegetables, zebras, dogs, cats, amoebas, all suffer. Not necessarily like us, but they all suffer. And they suffer for the same reasons. When one realizes that and realizes that we're all interconnected, we all rely on each other and we're all um, uh, interdependent on each other, then the focus changes that all the liberation work that one does is for the liberation of all sentient beings. So it's a big jump. So everything we do is not just about your own liberation, but the interconnected, interdependent liberation of sentient beings. And it is considered by tradition a much higher liberation, a much greater freedom. Okay. It also realizes that the suffering isn't actually real. So it's a big jump. So in the Hinayana, the actual suffering and the defilements and the lack of purification and emotions are real things. You get rid of them. In Mahayana, they're empty. They actually have no substantial nature. The self has no substantial nature. 
the hindrances have no substantial nature, and we liberate because we actually realize that. Number three, bigger jump. Now, big, big jump. We need all three because we can't understand the 37 practices of bodhisattvas unless we understand the three. So when you realize number two and you actually really have a heart that you're in this with everybody else and that everything you're doing is for other beings liberation too, that's your meditation, that's your practice. When you've established that experiential level, both empty and relieving suffering, the compassion of relieving suffering of all sentient beings, that realization, that living experience is called a bodhisattva, the two. Not just your liberation, but pervasive liberation and emptiness. All right? And that's what we're going to be practicing and studying today. The third, which, which is a bit in here, not, not much, but a little bit in here, it's important to understand, is that in fact, this is a, now a big jump. Ready for a big jump? Okay. Don't jump out the window, Misha. Don't do it. <laughs> he's, almost, he's almost a quarter way out of the window. Don't escape. So a bodhisattva is a being, actually the word is, is um, bodhi is enlightenment and sattva is a being, a being of enlightenment. But it doesn't really totally mean that. That's a literal translation. The word sattva really means heroic individual. That's really what it means. It means a, it means a heroic being. So it's not just a being who's liberating, that's how it's sometimes interpreted, but actually, the, what the texts mean is the being has come to a heroic place in the face of huge amount of suffering, it doesn't phase them or occasionally phases them, but they carry on. In other words, it's a heroic activity. To want to clear out the suffering of other beings is a huge step for a lot of people. We'll get into this. And many of you in this room are actually engaged in the relative liberation of other people. Isn't that correct? And creatures? So you're already doing it. May not have actually realized the full scope of it. So if when, you re when you taste the full scope of it, the infinite scope of liberating beings, and it's all empty, it's all free, that's a bodhisattva. But you can train as a bodhisattva. So it's actually good to hear what a bodhisattva does because then you'll just wait for 100,000 years waiting to be a bodhisattva. Well, you may as well train right from the very beginning. And I get that attitude sometimes. Some people say to me, well, I'll just wait till I'm a bodhisattva. I'll meditate and I'll wait till I'm a bodhisattva. But actually, you can practice right now. It's much faster if you know what you're doing. It's kind of like saying you're living in Antigua and I hope to get to New York. 
That's a very slow way. It could be that someone hands you a ticket, an air ticket, and you get it to New York, but the chances are you may have to wait a long time before someone hands you an air ticket or, or puts you in a car and drives you to New York. Do you see the difference? So this is why we say that meditation, the most important thing in meditation is not the act of meditation. It's the mental intent behind the meditation. Has anybody ever sat in their car, got, got in their car, and just sat behind the steering wheel <laughs> and hoped that you'd actually go somewhere? Has anybody ever done that? So to, to, to drive a car and go somewhere, you actually have, the, have to have the mental intent to go somewhere. But if you don't have clear mental intent, you may spend the entire dr day driving around Antigua before you ever, you know, like a young child wandering through the woods going to school. I don't know if you ever had that. I don't think they, do, they allow that anymore. But when we were kids, we had one mile to get to school. And we went to places our parents would never allow us to go, ever. They told us, don't ever go there. Oh, OK. So we went there. Uh, so, so we need that, but we also need to know where we're going. Otherwise, a very, very long process. OK, number three is really important to understand. Because most people that train in the 37 practices of a bodhisattva, like the author of this text from the 13th century, are also trained in the third. They have that perspective, and they have that training, and they have that level of understanding. This is, by the way, one of the first stages of liberation of a bodhisattva is called the heat. <laughs> so if, if you're in a class and you're taking your clothes off because it's getting too warm, you know that you're getting close. It's called the heat, the heat, the heat of wisdom. So the third is really important to understand because uh, it's mostly not only what I teach, but what, what, what most teachers of the Bodhisattva path are going to really teach. But it's a huge jump. Not for me at all, but for some. And this is that, in fact, all the qualities of a Bodhisattva, all the qualities of freedom, all the qualities of liberation are already intrinsic to the mind. This is very important. If you know that and you trust that, it's a lot easier. If you don't trust that, it's a very long, hard path because you're always trying to clear things out as if they're dirty. You know, like it's always like cleaning your house and trying to get rid of everything. The house is already utterly pure. But the, the mind that's, that is a habitual mind, is a conditioned mind, doesn't think so. Okay? So if you don't think so, you're always trying to clean house. But if you know so, you can both clean house and not clean house, and you know the house is already utterly, stainlessly pure. So in the third... It's really about emptiness and compassion as the nature of all beings' minds. That's what we're trying to awaken. That's the meditation. Okay? 
So we have those three stages we go through, and some people only practice and only meditate in the first. Some in the second, and rarer still in the third. But it actually is progressive, so you should know that. One rests on the other. They're not exclusive. So to hear the third, which is, which is called Vajrayana, means that the Hinayana, the first, must be in the third, and the second must be in the third. Are you, are you getting it? Like Russian dolls? You, you can't take away the Mahayana, the, sec, the great vehicle, from the third. You can't do it. It's absolutely necessary. Otherwise, you don't understand it, and you can't practice. So we all go through this, like this. Even if we're practicing Chen Rezi, we might be practicing Chen Rezi for ourselves. Oh, I feel better. Oh, this is good. I like this. I think I'll do more of this. Hinayana. And as soon as you start emanating white light and breathing in the suffering of other sentient beings, Mahayana. And as soon as you don't have to do anything, but you relax in the freedom of all sentient beings and help beings realize that, Vajrayana. Really it. Okay, who is the author of this text? So do you have the idea of bodhisattva? Yeah. So let me give you, there's another word. There's bodhisattva, heroic beings who are liberating, who've, realized, who've experienced liberation, but are now going to really unfold it. But there's another term that's important, and these are called maha, maha, great bodhisattvas. And great bodhisattvas are at a place where that's all they do is day and night are on about the liberation, relative and absolute, of all sentient beings. And they have extraordinary qualities. So who is the author of this uh, text? You all, you all have a copy? So if you turn, uh, if you turn to page, if you turn to the text, we're going to try to do one-third uh, of the text in each session. <clears throat> and then on the last session, we're going to get into uh, really the details uh, of extraordinary practices, also all through the other ones too, of, of how a bodhisattva actually really, really, really practices. And it's a lot to do with breathing. So if we can turn to the text where it says the 37 practices of all the bodhisattvas, uh, page one, which is the third, the third text. Yeah, third text. That's great. I've given two texts because uh, the translations are different enough that they become important. It's okay, I'm just going to spend a few minutes checking my emails <laughs> and, and, and reading the news, and then I'll get back to you. No, I'm just joking. joking. Uh, so this, this being uh, is, is pretty famous. Gelse took me Zangpo. And the, one of the reasons he's famous is this practice and a number of other practices, he, he has something like 150 texts he wrote. 
many of them untranslated to this day. This one has been translated early on. But he is of such, uh, this text is of such a quality that the 37 practices of all the bodhisattvas are practiced by every single monastic, no matter what tradition, in Tibet. It doesn't matter, and there's like going to school. It doesn't matter what school you go to. When you're five or six or seven years old, you've got this text memorized, and your, your teachers are telling you to practice, to learn it. And as, as the person who transmitted this to me said, when I was five years old, this is the first text given to me. I didn't have a clue what it meant, but I had to memorize it. I was five years old running around going, eventually over time, it became clearer and clearer. So this was transmitted to me um, by a number of, uh, first uh, received uh, by the Dalai Lama in a teaching he gave in, in uh, Ladakh. Uh, and then um, also uh, received a reading transmission uh, from uh, a Drikung Kempo, uh, Kempo temple in, in Vienna last year, because I asked him for it, because I wanted the unbroken reading transmission as well, just to make sure. Uh, so I don't like to teach things that I haven't received an unbroken transmission from the author. Uh, so uh, Tokme Zangpo uh, was born in 1297, and he died in 1371. He was born in a little, little tiny village in western central Tibet. Tiny, tiny village in an area called Sakya uh, in, in uh, western, uh, west, of, west of Lhasa, uh, near the great Sakya Monastery. Um, he was, uh, let me get another uh, a biography here. He lost his, his mother died at a very early age. Um, at the age of three, his father, died, his father died two years later. And he was cared for by relatives and spent his days herding uh, yaks. At the age of nine, he was taken into a monastery called Samling uh, under a Tampa Ridgeon's uh, Tashi, who taught him to read and write. Uh, at the age of 14, he was granted his uh, novice vows um, and and, uh, by uh, three illustrious teachers. He wasn't fully ordained until the age of 30, but actually in his 20s, he was already recognized as a great scholar and uh, extraordinary being in his, in his 20s. And one of his names he was given actually recognized him as a great master of Abhidhamma which is one of his specialties. Um, anyways, to make a long story short, uh, he studied uh, uh, all the different traditions uh, of all the three cycles of Dharma and became a tutor to some of the most illustrious uh, teachers uh, of Tibet at that time, especially the great Sakya uh, masters, and, and became an abbot of a very famous um, Sakya monastery called Bodong A. Uh, monastery. Um, and the biographies say that they don't know too much about him in his later years because it looks like he kind of went into meditation in his later years and taught um, his primary students uh, very closely, especially one in his later years. And that's quite classic to do when you get to your age of 60 or late 50s. It's quite traditional that you go into retreat and you only teach those 
that can find you or, or want to um, talk to you through uh, a little hole in the wall. Um, so he's said to have composed some 115 works, and I'm really looking forward uh, to seeing um, those. So this is why this is important is this is like not just primary training of everybody who practices Mahayana uh, Vajrayana, but uh, is considered one of the most precious transmissions and precious meditative texts to receive uh, in all of Tibet by anybody. So I'm very happy to pass it on and also to give a detailed uh, commentary. So if you look at your texts, it opens with um, and also we can translate the title, 37 Practices of All Bodhisattvas. I actually, I actually really like another text that you don't have, because I, I could give you five or six. But another one I quite like by, by a friend of mine, Eric Fry Miller, he, he translated as the 37 things that bodhisattvas do. I quite like that. It's more modern, 37 things a bodhisattva would do. So if you bring all these 37 together, your, your rate of liberation is very quick. You can just think of it that way. It's like, it's like taking, uh, uh, um, uh, let's use a car. I'm on about cars right now, I don't know why, but let's take a, a car metaphor for a moment. Uh, you need, let's say you need 37 major things for a car to work. Yes? If you're missing the engine, the car doesn't go very far. You have to get out and you have to push it. Correct? If you're missing the tires, it's very hard to get the car to work. If the, igni if the ignition isn't working, it's very hard to get the work, uh, car to go. If you don't have a key, do you get the idea? So this is like the 37 things that allow a car to actually drive. And it's 37 things that make the car drive really, really well as opposed to stutter to a stop on a regular basis. I, I think that's fair to say. So if you want to keep stuttering, you only have one or two of these. But if you want to really go and get to New York or, or London or to Buenos Aires, yeah, a long journey by car, then you need all 37 humming along. All right. So the, the uh, text uh, opens up with Namo Lokateshvare. This is homage, homage, respect, uh, great honor, I name uh, Lokateshvara, which is Avalokateshvara. And Avalokateshvara uh, has a very central place in uh, Tibet, which is the great Mahabodhisattva, great enlightened being that protects all Tibetans. And uh, it has a a deep place because Avalokiteshvara, or Chenrezig in Tibetan, uh, is an embodiment of complete compassion and emptiness and the full realization of that. And the other reason, if you read the commentaries, you'll see that Avalokiteshvara, or, or Chenrezig, um, by all Tibetans, uh, the, the uh, a Lama, the word Lama, like Dalai Lama, um, uh, means that they embody or are a reflection or an emanation of, of Avalokiteshvara. So this is a way of giving homage to the, 
the highest ideal that you want to become. Not, not just your teacher, but the highest ideal of what you want to embody is Avalokiteshvara. Now, the beautiful thing about this word is it, just, it actually explains the bodhisattva conduct. And if you look at the word avalokiteshvara in Sanskrit, it actually is quite an amazing word. Uh, it actually means a being that looks out and sees the nature, not, not just the appearance but sees the empty nature and the suffering of all sentient beings clearly by seeing their nature. So the word loka, lokateshvara, means worlds or spheres or places that you appear in. This means that avalokateshvara, bodhisattva, can appear in different places for different beings and help those beings where they're at. Making sense? Not just be able to teach Dharma in Toronto, but be able to teach Dharma maybe in Guatemala, or in India, or in Japan, or in hell, or in heaven, different, different places. Because they understand what all sentient beings go through. So part of the practice of being a bodhisattva is not just understanding the suffering that you go through, but the, the nature of suffering, what every single creature has to actually go through. So it sounds a bit cruel, but is actually a very loving statement when I say to some, some people, when they say to me, I have my own personal afflictive states. No, you don't. You, everybody has the same ones. They're just slightly cultural, historically, permutations on a combination. So on Thursday night, in the Thursday night class, I was talking about the three roots, the three unwholesome roots, greed, hatred, and delusion. All of our suffering is greed, hatred, delusion, but different manifestations of greed, hatred, delusion. So a bodhisattva sees that less the stories. Because once you get too involved in the stories, you may not be able to help that person very well. So if you notice that sometimes when you go to a doctor, and the doctor, a, a medical doctor and a medical doctor ask you, what's happening with you. They, they often stop a person telling all kinds of stories about themselves. They just want the symptoms, hmm? not all the stuff around it. Yeah? Okay. But the art of a bodhisattva, it's very important because we're going to go through this, is not only to know about absolute suffering, what's the cause of suffering, but be able to help beings in different degrees of suffering out of their afflictive states. So we have to backtrack and, and get to your question, Misha, about freedom. The nature of a bodhisattva is not just to alleviate 
temporary suffering, but to remove the cause of suffering. You should write that down. That's, that's, a, big, that's a big difference. This is really important. This is like the dividing line. Yeah, I'll, I'll go over this a few times. This is really important. If we love someone, we care for them, but we may not be on about removing the cause of the suffering, but supporting them to make them feel better. Does that, does that make sense? In other words, they may say to you, I need food, or I need alcohol, or I need this or this or this, but it's actually not the cause of their suffering. But we do it because we love them. Make sense? In other words, we go in and we do what they want. Education, medical treatment, whatever it is. I was just reading uh, recently about part of the antibiotic problem. The pressure on doctors to give antibiotics because they get bad reviews and can get in trouble if they don't, even though uh, clinical studies are showing in hospitals, and so really good studies, that sometimes 60% of all uh, antibiotics, um, especially for urinary tract infection, I've just been reading about this, kind of interesting, uh, uh, are, are not necessary, but uh, you can be under tremendous pressure to administer something out of love and care. Does, does that make sense? Okay. That's called love. That's called loving kindness. A feeling that you want beings to be well cared for and be happy, but it may not actually be the cause of the suffering. Okay. When we come to compassion, relative compassion, we're trying to identify the causes, the main cause of suffering, and relieve those so they don't happen again. Is that making sense? That's called great love, great compassion. But it still may not be the origin of suffering, which is mental suffering, which is clinging to a belief system that actually has no basis in reality or is fabricated and keeps causing mental suffering. Getting that one's very important. This is what a bodhisattva does. They do both. So a bodhisattva may build a hospital or fund a school or hire teachers to remove relative suffering. Make sense? But they may also look for the cause, the ultimate cause of suffering, which is clinging to a belief system that is inherently unreal. That's Lokateshvara. Avalokateshvara does both. To, for all beings, for all types of beings. So let me pause there because that's really important. Yeah, I yeah. Don't, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't quite follow. Okay. And it could be the second one. It yeah. Is the second one, yeah. Okay. So normally when we talk about people suffering mentally, we talk about their afflictive states of emotional afflictive states, right? A bodhisattva wants to know what causes those afflictive states. Most people will engage in a story about what caused their afflictive states. It's my mother-in-law. It's my father-in-law. It's the dog that, that ate my book. It's something that's happening that I don't like, correct? An exterior to 
an exterior, but they haven't looked at the mind that does the suffering. So in Dharma, the purpose of Dharma is to find out the origin of suffering and make that discovery, which is called liberation, because it, pr it produces an extraordinary amount of freedom and bliss. So we go right back to the Buddha's first teaching. What's the origin of all suffering, all mental suffering? Clinging, clinging to something that's inherently transient, unsatisfactory, or satisfactory. We have to understand this. Why does the Bodhisattva get engaged? Get engaged to beings, all beings. Because when someone's chasing after something that's ephemeral and can't be grasped, it really hurts. So you imagine someone grasping after a ghost and keep chasing after it when in fact it doesn't truly exist. Now, that's a really hard one because when you're born into a society like ours where emotions truly exist and a self truly exists, haven't we all been taught that? 150 years. No, wait a minute, not true. 135 years of a culture that fully believes in the primacy of the reality of emotions and a self that has to be dealt with. Fantastic, eh? Is it wrong? Is it right? So, from the standpoint of liberation, Misha, because Misha asked about liberation, even if you have everything going right for you, does anybody ever have anything right go for them now? I suspect there's some people in this room relative to 6.5 billion people on this earth, okay, no, 6.3 billion people on this earth have almost everything right going for them. Is that about right? Education, medical care, a good roof over a house, maybe even a swimming pool, wonderful partner, good cars, everything just about right that you'd think would be a happy life, yes? But when you dig in and you find out the numbers of those 600 million or a billion people, let's say 600 million people, that really have everything well, everything right going for them, that are suffering like crazy, you should know the numbers. The numbers are really high. Anxiety, depression, or any kind of afflictive disorders, it's really high. I think almost every class I trot the numbers out, don't I? Today I won't. Go look them up. Even if you get everything right on the outer, the inner can be suffering like crazy. Okay. The Dharma is the study of what causes that suffering ultimately not relatively, ultimately, and how to come out of that, how to realize that it's not actually necessary. Everybody get that? That's it. That's it. That's all meditations for that purpose. So could you imagine, let's be really goofy for a moment. Could you imagine if you discovered one day, sitting quietly or standing or having a cup of tea, 
that the self that you thought you had, that you are dialoguing about, that you're trying to get right, you're trying to massage and create stories and figure it out, actually is a creation of a, a conceptual mind that has no basis in any kind of reality except made up by a conceptual mind. Could you imagine what that would be like? Not depression. A fantastic lifting of the weight off the shoulders. Could you imagine one day quietly sitting and you're in the midst of an afflictive state? And the afflictive state just doesn't slowly vanish, but you can't find it anywhere when you look. Okay. So I'm just going to go on for a little a second. Yeah. So these discoveries, which often happen in meditation, can happen in meditation, if, you're, if they're seen the right way, really do change a life. It doesn't mean that the emotion isn't relatively real. Are you, are you hearing this? Relatively real to a conceptual mind that has an idea about it, yes? Is a rainbow real or unreal? Have you ever tried to pass your hand through a rainbow and grabbed a rainbow? How many people here would go out to a pond and try to pick up the full moon reflected in the pond with their hands. How many people would do that? Would you laugh? Would you laugh at any adult trying to scoop up the moon and go after it? How many people have ever felt their self self suffer? Let's see a show of hands. Anybody? Let's be honest. Self suffer. Have you ever looked at the experience of what that is very closely. And when people do, they often find they can't find anything of any substance except the idea of a self. Okay. So, this is not to say there's no self, but there's no self that can be ultimately traced back and found. Okay? And it doesn't mean that there's no emotional states. It's just that when you look very carefully, you can't find them. So often in retreat, not on a weekend like this, I think I have a couple kinds, I've given out a meditation which is for people to bring me a, in a cage, in a fine mesh cage. And it should be, if you know your micron sizes, it should be at least two micron mesh. Because an ego and a self and an emotion is so fine they can leak out through a two micron mesh. So maybe we need a micron mesh that's about one angstrom. You know, about, no, eight angstroms, about the size of a small atom, yeah? So it doesn't leak out. So no, in, in, in all the years I've been teaching, no one has yet brought me an ego, a caged ego, a caged self, or a caged emotion. But they've talked about it as if it's a real firm thing. The practice of dharma and the purpose of dharma is to realize the relative and the absolute nature of that which causes a suffering, which is self-referencing and chasing after that which is about as 
substantial as a rainbow. Does that mean you don't do anything about emotions and self? No. But you can get very confused and very tired chasing after the stories around the rainbow. Okay, so I'll just pause there for a second and, and answer your, your question. Yeah? Yeah. So relatively bringing good relative to compassion to an individual who has a story or a idea about themselves or their emotions and relieving the pressure of that, considerable pressure, is a worthwhile relative mode of compassion. Does it make sense? But discovering the freedom of self that has no actual basis but a conceptual mind that creates it, this is extraordinary freedom. Okay, this is what a bodhisattva uh, does, both. And it's now um, in some place in the world, 10.30, and let's take a 10-minute break, and I'm going to then try to get through the first, first bit of this, this text with that introduction.